Friends, let me invite you, if you have a copy of the scriptures, to turn with me to uh, John chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. I'll be asking you to stand in just a moment, but let me just, by way of introduction, simply say we've ended our Roman series last week. And now as we are preparing for uh, the Passion Week, this would, uh, I think, be an appropriate passage. It falls in line with the timing of what is about to take place that we are about to celebrate in uh, a few weeks. It is um, the last I am saying in John's Gospel, the eighth of eight I am sayings in John's Gospel. Um, You'll remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as synoptic gospels, that word, fancy word that just simply means the same. John is not a synoptic gospel. It's not the same as Matthew, Mark, and Luke who teach or or give their instruction, their, their letters from their own perspective. But John doesn't have any of the parables like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. John has the eight I am sayings like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not. So they're not the same, so John is not considered a synoptic gospel. Nonetheless, what he tells us here is the holy, infallible, and inspired word of God, and it is great, uh, great news for people like you and me today. I probably have preached on this passage in years past from the perspective that perhaps you have heard uh, it preached, and that is usually a comparison Talking about those that are in the vine, that are in Christ, and those that are not in the vine, those that are in and those that are out, and we have a comparison on individuals, but I want to take a different approach to this passage this morning, and hopefully I'll convince you by the end of the sermon that there is another way to read this passage as well that is even greater news for people like you and me. Out of love and respect for God's Word, join me in standing as we give our full attention to the reading and the preaching of it. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the very Word of God. Jesus speaking says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes now to behold marvelous, wonderful things from this portion of your holy law. Remind us of your covenant faithfulness. Remind us of your promises. And teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. 
Well, in my semi-retirement a year ago, I uh, needed to get out of the house from time to time to give my wife some sanity. So I decided I would secure a part-time job, and I did, as a tour guide and driver for a wine tour company. And just about every Friday and Saturday, I pick up my Sprinter van and I drive to the location where I pick up the group of individuals that I'll be taking to a different part of the hill country on, wine, on a wine tour as I'm explaining our Texas soil and our heat and the Texas hill country AVA and the High Plains AVA where most of our grapes come from for the wine that we produce in Texas. And I spend my day uh, educating and driving these individuals and giving them a piece of what we celebrate every day as we live here in the hill country, the beauty of the hill country. One particular tour, I got my ladies situated. They they were from college. They had all gone to college together. They had graduated years before. They had a small reunion of about eight or nine of them. And I was driving them to their different locations, got them to their first place, and I happened to go to a winery that just has a tasting room. There's no vineyard there, so there are no grapes, there are no vines, there's no trellis, there's just the vineyard. And as I I had them seated and they were poured their first uh, little bit of wine, I noticed one woman was looking out the window and looking out this window, and finally she got up and she walked over there. I could tell something was perplexing her. So I walked up and I simply asked, is everything okay? Is there anything that I can get you? And she said, where, where, are, the, where are the vines and where are the branches? Where are the, where's the grapes? You, you can't have a winery if you don't have vines and grapes. So I had to explain to her that 80% of our wine comes from Lubbock or outside of Lubbock out in, in the desert because of the climate there. And this was just a tasting room for her to try the wine. What she wanted to know was what she had in her hand. The the product of the fruit that was in that particular glass came from right there. She wanted to know that this was the product of that. That this fruit came from those vines right there to seal in her mind that she was drinking the product of that fruit or of those vines right there. And in a very real way, friends, that's what Jesus is doing in this particular passage for us this morning. Jesus is defining for us what it means to be the product of the vine. He is the vine, we are the branches. He is giving us the definition, as he says, of what it means to be a true disciple. He actually tells us that God is glorified. He says that in verse 8. God is glorified when we are doing this very thing, when we are bearing much fruit, and therefore we are proving to be his disciples. We are proving as the product of the vine that we are secure in that one, in that vine, when we are living as the true disciple that he has called us to be. But many times, friends, we want to define what it means, don't we, to be a true disciple. What Jesus does here is gives us a clear definition of what it means to be a true disciple. Matter of fact, his entire focus in this portion of Scripture is is designed to, directed to, true disciples, his individuals that are already secure in their union with Christ. And he is defining for them, for us, what it means to prove to be in the vine, to prove to be a true disciple. 
But what we want to do many times in our sinfulness is we want to make that definition instead of relying on his definition. Instead of resting on the definition of what it means to prove that we are a disciple, we want to do that ourselves. We want to prove it by the things that we do or the things that we don't do. We are a, a, a people that are fixated with our, our works, aren't we? What it is that we do. You may wrestle with one of these sins over here, and I don't wrestle with that particular sin. It may be a problem for you, but it's not a problem for me or vice versa. And so in my sinfulness, see, what I will do is I'll say, a true disciple would never do that. Because I don't, I, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, tempted by that. It's easy for me to say, yeah, a true disciple refrains from all of that. But all the while, see, what I'm doing is I'm holding on to this. This is what actually is tempting me. But I don't want to define that. I, I, I want to I hold on to this. So I don't want to call this a, a, a sin and, and prove to be a sinner instead of a disciple. I want to hold on to this. In my definition, this is not so bad because it's not hurting anybody. It's just hurting me maybe from time to time. But now that, oh my goodness. So that's what we want to do. We want to define what it means to be a true disciple by elevating ourselves. And making ourselves look better by our own good works. But look what Jesus does, friends, in this particular passage. Jesus defines for us himself what it means to prove that we are disciples. But we prove, look at verse 3, the very first word of verse 3. Already, already you are clean. Already you have been washed. The work of grace has already been applied to us. And so when he gets to the word prove in verse 8, that we prove that we are disciples, it has absolutely nothing. Hear me clearly, please. It has absolutely nothing to do with our merit, our actions, our works. We don't prove that we are disciples and earn that right by anything that we do. But we have already been washed clean by the gospel of grace. And therefore, now we are proving that we are in the vine as the fruit of the vine by the work of grace in our hearts and minds as Jesus has defined that in this passage. So often I have heard this and probably been guilty myself of looking at this passage and seeing it as a comparison. Those that are in and those that are not in. Those that are in and those that are out. And we just want to be sure that we're those, those that are in and not those that are out. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here at all, friends. I think what Jesus is doing is talking only to those that are in. He's not talking about any of those that are not in. He's simply focusing on people like you and me, on those that are true disciples, because he is proving that through us as we live in union, as we abide in, and as we find joy in the vine, Christ himself. So let me walk us through this passage, looking at three things, three things that I think prove that we are disciples, that we rest in. And the first is our union with Christ. Verse 3, already you have been washed through the word. Already you have been cleansed. And that work is this, that twofold work that now Christ dwells in me and now I dwell in Christ. You heard that in the passages that were read this morning in our liturgy. 
that Christ has already done a work for us, and he resides in us now by the power of his Spirit. He indwells within us by the power of his Spirit, and that work is already done. He has taken from us our sin and given to us his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might be dead to sin and alive to all that is good. We are now in union with Christ because of that calling, because of that benefit, because of that work of grace that God has given to us. It is already taken place, already washed clean. That is the gospel. That is the gospel of grace, that it's not about you and your, er- or your merits, your efforts to earn God's favor and His pleasure. He has already done that for you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Already, He now dwells within us, and I am in Him, in union with Him, and that's the blessing, the blessing of the gospel. Disciples, true disciples, dwell in union with the Savior. Now, let me give you a little bit of context here that will help since we're just pulling these 11 verses out instead of working through the book itself. Perhaps this is what has happened. If you look at the last phrase of chapter 14, Jesus says, rise and let us go from here. And then they're walking, and as they're walking, he is speaking. Where are they rising from and leaving from? They have been in the upper room. They've been in the upper room where Jesus has instructed them after washing their feet what it means to celebrate in the Eucharist, the holy meal, the the Lord's Supper. He's given us now a, a, a meal of context of those that are inside the covenant. Judas has left. He left to do quickly what he had to do. And now the 11 that remain are those true disciples the ones that have now been proven to be true disciples through the finished work of Christ are about to be finished work as he hangs on the cross. So they are leaving the upper room. They're about to head across the Kidron Valley to begin the ascent up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will pray. And perhaps this is what's taking place. He walks from the upper room past the temple And as they're walking past the temple, he points out what's over the holy place. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, gives us great detail about what takes place and uh, what's involved in the temple. And what he says is, over the entrance into the holy place in the temple, in gold, was a great big branch with all of the vines that come off and fruit, grapes, And each grape was the size of a man. That's what Josephus says. So you can imagine the massive, the massive thing that is over the top of the entrance into the holy place. Now, Jesus had already told the disciples that he was the true temple. And they said, do what? What are you talking about? I am the true temple. Tear it down and it will be, I'll raise it back in three days and all that whole conversation. So now as he's walking from the upper room and he's headed to the Kidron Valley, he says, you see that? I am the true vine. Now these individuals, these 11, would have known the the history of, of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, and even a few of the Psalms where ethnic Israel had been referred to as the vine. 
They were the vine. And so Jesus now walks past this over the holy place and he says, you see that? I am the true vine. And again, they would think, what? No, we are the true vine. But in every context through Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, and the Psalms, when it says ethnic Israel was the vine of Yahweh, it's always in the context of their disobedience and sinfulness. It's always with the hope of yet another prophet is going to be coming to call them back to repentance, that they would repent of their sin and come back. Now, perhaps that's the context then. It's fitting with the keeping of his saying, I am the true temple. And now it's fitting perhaps in in keeping with I am the true vine. And they're looking at this, this illustration of that, and they're thinking, no, we're the true vine. And he says, no, you're not. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's proving himself to be who he is and what it means to be a true disciple. But look at verse 2. Okay, if we're, not, if we're not taking this in a comparison, what do we do with verse 2? Every branch that's in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, that certainly sounds like language that you're in uh, or you're not in. If you don't bear fruit, you're not in. He takes you away. But the Greek word iros there, translated takes away in the ESV, It's a good translation. It can certainly mean that. But it also has another translation. It means to lift up or to take up. So perhaps what Jesus is saying now is, look, guys, you're not melons who grow on the ground by your own efforts. But as a true disciple, I will take you up. I will lift you up. Every branch that does not bear fruit, I will lift up. I will lift up and connect into me. Instead of leaving you there, I will lift you up. I will do this work of taking you up. And not only lifting you up, but then he goes on to say, and he will prune that it may bear even more fruit. What does that mean? That means just clipping away those things that will end up resulting in a greater greater abundance of the fruit. What Jesus is saying to those 11 disciples now, now that Judas is gone, he's got the contact, the attention of those that are true disciples that he is about to shed blood for. And he is saying, listen, I love you so much that I'm not going to allow you to continue in your little sins over here that you want to define as not being sin. But I'm going to bear that sin and not only bear it by lifting you up, but I'm going to prune you. I'm going to cut it away ever so gently that you may be a true disciple and bear even more fruit. You probably did this. The weather is nice now. Last week I was out in my yard. All my, all, everything in my front yard's brown. And I'm trimming it all back. And I'm trimming this, this grass that grows up. I don't remember the name of it. But as I'm trimming it back, right there in the center are little green shoots that are starting to come up. And I'm cutting it all back for the purpose of giving that the ability to to even become greater than it is now. To be full and green instead of brown. But all that stuff that I cut off, I didn't go put on my firewood stack so that I could use that for firewood in my fireplace. No, it's trash. It's small. It's insignificant. I threw it in my little orange lid dumpster and I got rid of it. Friends, listen, in your union with Christ, that's what Jesus is promising you. He comes along. He lifts you up. 
out of darkness and into his glorious light. Already you were dead in your sins and transgressions. He lifted you up and made you alive in Christ Jesus. And every time we hold on to these things over here, he says, I love you too much to continue in that. I'll reveal it and I'll clip it away and I'll burn it. I'll throw it away that you may be a true disciple of mine. It's all about grace. See, it's all about grace. He's already done this work for us. Why do we try, why do we try to earn God's favor and merit, trying harder in our own actions? He already loves us 100%. We cannot improve 100%. We rest in the already work that's done in our union with Christ. Beginning in verse 4 through 10, then, he tells us, gives us a picture of the second thing that is a definition of being a true disciple, not only in our union with Christ, but as we now abide with him. Ten times in seven verses, Jesus uses the word abide. And that word simply means uh, to dwell, to remain, uh, or to live. To live in Christ. Seven or ten times in seven verses, he tells us, now that you've come to the understanding that you have already been lifted up and I'm pruning you away, now there's where you want to there's where you want to rest. There's where we want to live every moment of every day of our life. Abide in me. Verse four, look at it. Abide in me and I in you. Friends, that is a, a command. Abide in me. That is a command. Our choices, our decisions now, as those that are products of this grace, that is already the work that has already been done, that is a command for us to think about what we do, think about what we say. So I'm not saying that our actions don't apply. That is a command. You abide in me. That's what Jesus says. But look what he says after that. As I abide in you. The command is followed by a promise. We never can do this apart from that. We keep the command by the work of the Spirit who dwells within us because that is the promise that He gives. Now as they're walking by the fruit over the temple and He says, I am the true vine, they would have known, they would have thought perhaps, oh yeah, yeah, He he once told us about ethnic Israel being the true vine, but they were disobedient. They always needed someone to come along to call them back. And we are the same way. And you know what? He was faithful under the old covenant. Yahweh was faithful with all of the prophets, major and minor, and the remnant of individuals that he kept back then. And now he'll be faithful too. That's the promise that he gives. He was faithful, proved it back then. He's faithful today and proves it to us today as well. Cling to that in times like this when he's revealing and he's pruning away. And painful as that is, be be reminded, my friends, that he is saying, and I in you. I abide in you. He dwells within us now. The finished work by the power of his Holy Spirit. He can be trusted every moment of every day. That's the promise that he gives to us. Now look at verse 6. Okay, if we're not taking this as a comparison, what are we going to do with verse 6? If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and they are burned. 
There are three ways, I think, that we can interpret that particular passage. And the first is this. If we're looking at this as individuals, as people, those that are in the vine and those that are not in the vine, and defining that as the comparison of individuals, then what Jesus is saying here, the first interpretation is there is no eternal security. You can be in today and you can be out tomorrow. Woof. That's not biblical, is it? We can throw that one off the table, thanks be to God. He who began a good work in me, what? Will see it to the day of completion. I am persuaded that neither height nor depth nor any other creature can separate me from the love of Christ that is found in Jesus Christ my Savior. Thanks be to God. That's only two verses of what the Bible teaches. That when we, were, when we are in Christ, we are in Christ. We are doubly joined in the hand of Christ, in the hand of God, doubly joined forever and ever. No one can snatch us from there. So we can't interpret this verse that way. Another way would be, we can look like we're in the vine on the outside, but we're really not. Now, that is biblical. They just left the upper room where Judas was one of them, and he went quickly to do what he needed to do, had to do. They talk about uh, the scriptures, Paul talks about Demas, who loved the things of the world more than he loved the gospel. And even John, the author of this book, says they've proven that they weren't with us because they left us. So that is biblical, that we can look like we're in the vine on the outside, but we're really not. While biblical, is that what Jesus is doing here? If so, then it's completely out of the blue. He hasn't been speaking about that at all. And so it's completely out of the blue. But what's our third alternative, our third way of interpreting? He has been telling us over and over again, bear much fruit, bear much fruit. I will prune away that you will bear much fruit. I don't believe this passage is a comparison of those that are in and those that are out. It's, a, it's an instruction to only those that are in to say, fruit, that's the focus. I want you to bear fruit. And as you continue to live in your sin, I will lift you up. I'll cut it away. I'll throw it away to burn it that you can bear even more fruit. I don't think it's a comparison of individuals. I think it's a focus on our bearing fruit, our abiding, our living in Jesus today. I had another tour after the one I told you about just a moment ago. And when, when people ask me this, I, oh, I cringe a little bit. They'll say, uh, how long have you been doing this? You've been doing this your whole career? I said, no, I just recently took a, kind of a semi-retirement. And I've, I've just been doing this for about a year just to, to give me something to do. Oh, what did you do before you retired? I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, one of two things happens. I'll say, well, I, was, uh, I, I still am a, a Presbyterian pastor for 30 years. Unactivated, you know? Oh, you're going to judge me now. I'm a little tipsy from drinking this wine, and you're thinking I'm a bad person or so forth, things like that. Uh, or this will happen. If that doesn't happen, then this will happen. They'll begin to tell me something about their church or something, and I had, uh, what did you do? Oh, I was a Presbyterian, or I'm a Presbyterian pastor. Oh, well, for Lent, I have given up cussing and social media. That's what she told me. I've given up cussing and social media, and all my friends are commenting now in emails how my emails are different because there aren't any, any bad words in there, and how I'm not even present on social media. So they're sending me emails and texts about why am I being so silent on social media. And then she said, oh, but I only have two more weeks, two more weeks, and then I'll be done with that. 
Now, friends, that is the very opposite of what Jesus is saying here. This repentance, this cutting away is not just a temporary thing that we do in this Lenten season that we're in now. The giving up of something right now. He is saying, I love you so much. I love you enough that I will bear your sins in my body. I will lift you up in me so that you can now abide in me. Why? Verse 8. Because it brings glory to our Heavenly Father. Isn't that a beautiful gospel? That He would do this work for you and me, people like you and me. That He would not allow us to cling to these little things, but He would reveal them to us, that He could snip them away, that we in turn, abiding in Him, would bear even more fruit for the praise and glory of Yahweh, our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And then that's how he ends. Not only are we in union, now living, abiding, but now that we are experiencing filled with this joy. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Don't jump over the first part of that. Look at what he says. That my joy may be in you. He's not talking about that which is inside us. That's what he concludes with, and that your joy may be complete. But what he is saying first is, hey, when you are glorifying the Father, living in this gospel in union with me, then God is glorified, and not only is he glorified, but he is filled with joy. Yahweh is filled with joy. That my joy may be in you. Have you ever thought about that? That God is turning his face toward you and the way you are abiding, living in him. He's got a smile on his face. He's dancing dancing over us with joy as the psalmist declared. And then in turn, that your joy may be complete, full. Our joy in him and his joy in us. That is the context of what Jesus is giving us here, the work that he's already done, the work that he's sealed to us as we live in him. Have you, is your life that, friends? That's my, that's my question for you. The life that you're living today is your heavenly Father in heaven now looking down, filled with great joy because of what it is that you're doing. Not, not because you're earning his favor, but because you're resting in that grace That he gives to you in the finished work of Christ. I have uh, more tours upcoming weeks. (laughs) It's been interesting. The last couple of weeks I've noticed that in the vineyards. Where the wineries that I'm going to that do have vines. All the dead branches that hung on the trellis for low these winter months. They have now pruned them all off. They've snipped them all off. And I have just the trunk that comes out with the arms that go across and then these little bitty nubs on each one of these arms that are ready for all the wires that are above. And I know next week and the week after and the week after that, I'll see a little green spot. I'll see a little little shoot that will become a longer shoot that will be tied up on the branch and then that will bear those great big bushels of grapes, green grapes that will turn to purple grapes. I will visually see in the next few weeks what it is that Jesus has just told us right here in this passage. 
That's your life. That is your life. If you're in union with Christ, living with Christ, finding joy in Christ, because, dear friends, apart from him, we can't do anything. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to focus on your gospel, what it is that you do in us, to us, for us, that you love us this much, that we are yours because you have decreed it. You are the vine and we are the branches. So, Father, let us abide even today. Let us live in the fullness of this place that you have ordained. And through us, would you bear more fruit, more fruit in our hearts, in our lives, and even as those that you are drawing to yourself that are apart from you, that are seeing this gospel lived out in us, would you do that for their sake too? All for the praise of your glorious grace, for your honor and your glory we ask in Jesus' name.